a mescal of Ethan the Ezrahite. Verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Salah. Verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab. You crushed Rahab, excuse me, like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. Verse 17. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen shall strengthen him. Verse 22. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall be, shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep, will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon as it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. Verse 38.
But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his case, you have made his splendor to cease, and his, and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. Verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. These are the words of our God. We are in week seven of our Summer in the Psalms series in one of the worst summers in Palmerston North's history, I am told. And uh, I wanted to do a selection of Psalms and they bring out all the different themes that are found in the Psalms. So last week was Psalm 88, which was uh, very much a Psalm of lament. And this Sunday we're in Psalm 89, and I've chosen it for a, a very specific reason. It is set in a very dark time in Israel's history. And it is centered around the remembrance of the Davidic covenant and the faithfulness of God. The Davidic covenant is a tremendously important part of scripture. If the Bible is the story of God's plan of salvation, beginning to end in Jesus Christ, and it is. And if we compare the Bible to something that we can all appreciate to different degrees, for example, a car, I would argue that the Davidic covenant is something like the headlights or maybe even the steering wheel. In that, it gives direction. And I say headlights because if you, we can all appreciate the fact you would not drive a car without headlights at night in the dark. You just wouldn't. It gives direction and uh, shows the future when times are dark. And I think the Davidic covenant is so important in this way and that it shows its way through many of the really, really dark times in Scripture. I think one of the reasons why we... Uh, don't appreciate books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, is because we don't get the Davidic covenant. And we read those books. Maybe you do a Bible in the Year reading plan, and you get to First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, and you're just like 
so what? And there's a real danger for that for me here this morning because it can be a little bit like a, a so what moment. Why are we looking at a psalm about the Davidic covenant? David's old news, Jesus has come. But what we need to be asking ourselves is, is how did we get to the place where we're at now? I'd also argue that rightly understanding the Davidic covenant helps us when we get to the start of the New Testament and we get those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It helps us appreciate the culture and the expectation of a Messiah. I think that is one of the, the great purposes of the Davidic covenant. It helps Israel long for and appreciate the fact that a Messiah will come based on the promises of God in Genesis 3.15 that a seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would come and illuminate your word which you authored this psalm through Ethan. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate the text to show it what it means, that it would bring encouragement and that ultimately it would lead us to appreciate and long for Christ all the more. Jesus' precious name we pray this. Amen. Okay. We're not going through every single verse, just throwing that right off the bat, 52 verses, but I want to jump around uh, a little bit. And as we ask ourselves the question, what's going on here, we need to appreciate the context, because 2017 New Zealand is very, very different to 900 BC Israel, which is what we have here. And I understand and totally appreciate that not all of us have got our brains fully warmed up in January, but this is very uh, helpful for us to understand scripture. Once again, just like last week, David is not the author. This psalm is written significantly after, a generation or two most likely, after the reign of uh, King David. And it is written by a man, you see in the first verse, the guy called Ethan the Ezraite. He's mentioned in First Kings chapter 4 as a wise man at the time of the reign of King Solomon. I think that this psalm makes most sense, and most commentators agree that this psalm was written after the reign of King Solomon in a very dark, seemingly hopeless time in Israel's history, 900 BC or thereabout. If you're asking yourself, so what, why does that matter, I don't know these people, that's okay, we'll get there. What we have to do when we look at a psalm, and I'm very passionate about seeing Christ in all the scripture, but what we have to do is always, the first principle is, we always have to ask ourselves, what did this mean to the people who read it first? Only then can then we look back at the whole story of scripture and see how it points to, to Christ. So we're going to go big picture, narrow it down, and then we're going to sweep through it again and see how this psalm and the Davidic covenant points us to the perfect Redeemer King, whose name is Jesus. Real briefly, the Bible starts off with Adam and Eve. They are exiled from a garden. Noah, with the ark, protects 
a small remnant of people as God judges the earth. And God speeds up his salvation plan with Abraham through whom he forms the nation of Israel. This nation of Israel is taken into slavery in Egypt. They are brought out by Moses. And this nation has grown at this point to about 2 million people. In Psalm 89 verses 9 and 10, the exodus in Israel coming out of Egypt is mentioned. This is the demonstration of the faithfulness of God. Israel then go into the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. And it becomes a time of the judges. There is no king in the land. Every man does what is right in their own eyes. And the people of Israel demand a king. They want a king. And Saul, a man called Saul, is appointed. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul is disobedient. God has ordered them to fully conquer the Amalekites. And Saul says, no. He disobeys God. And it gets so bad that the prophet Samuel has to kill the Amalekite king himself. And that is where 1 Samuel 16 and 17 come into play. God anoints a man, shepherd boy, called David as king. Not because he's impressive, but because God chooses him. And Psalm 89 and the start says that God has chosen David to be his servant. David does what Saul did not do and kills Goliath and wipes evil out from this land of Canaan. God then makes a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, and it is written about in 2 Samuel 7. That is what is being mentioned here in Psalm 89. What is this? It is very simple. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it is an everlasting kingship through the line of David. That is the covenant that God has made with David. The king, the Davidic king in the nation of Israel, had a very special role as leader of the people of Israel. And the the people of Israel were only allowed to live in this land of Canaan, provided they kept God's law. That's what the, the Mosaic covenant was that governed the land. The king had a unique responsibility to make sure that this happened. David dies, his son Solomon takes over. You might remember from Sunday school, this is one of those things that always sticks with you. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon jacks up taxes because he needs a bigger house for all of his wives. And uh, so his wives have come from among the pagan nations. Solomon's disobeyed God and marries women that are not Israelites. And Solomon, unsurprisingly, begins worshipping all of those other gods. He gets so bad that he builds altars to the gods Molech and Chemosh. Not good at all. It gets worse because Solomon then dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. And his son Rehoboam is a very stubborn man. And the request from the people was that the taxes that his father Solomon had had raised would be lowered. Can you please give us a break? And Rehoboam says no. And at that moment, the kingdom of Israel is split in two. 
under a man by the name of Jeroboam, ten of the tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel, ten of the tribes split and go north, leaving Jeroboam to lead Judah with simply the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south. The kingdom is split. And that's our background for the psalm. It took just two kings after David for things to fall almost completely apart. You have widespread immorality, you have worship of false gods, and you have this kingdom split in two. What happened to the promise of this Davidic kingship? A king over the kingdom of these twelve tribes. And that helps us understand what is happening here. You might have noticed the change while the psalm was being read in verse 38. This is the psalmist's problem. He says in verse 38, But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed, your king. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. He's saying, God, you're angry with your king. You're angry, you were angry with Solomon for his disobedience. You were angry with Rehoboam. And now this crown of David is in the dust. All the tribes are gone. A king cannot rule without a kingdom. We all appreciate that, right? It says in verse 40, it says the walls are down. Anyone can come into Canaan and plunder. They have no respect for the people of God. They mock God. They mock his army and they beat it easily. And if we look through verses 40 through to verse 46, the psalmist is laying the blame for this on God. Why have you allowed this to happen? He says the throne of David that was supposed to be so majestic is now worthless. The Davidic kingship is a shadow of its former self, and it's a shame upon David's name. God, what are you doing? That familiar cry in verse 46, How long, O Lord, Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? What are you doing? I don't understand. I know it is hard for us to appreciate a kingdom in the Middle East, a theocracy, 3,000 years ago. But the inherent interest of the entire world over the past few months with the American election at least makes me realize that we do understand something of the importance of nations and good leadership. But especially so in Israel. Imagine you live in a theocracy where church and state are one and you're in a nation that is set apart from all other nations and this nation is ruled by a king who is supposed to reign in righteousness. It says in verse 27, I will make him, this king, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The greatest nation on earth specifically set apart by God. And you imagine now that this nation and this kingdom falls apart and begins to crumble so quickly within just two generations. You can imagine how 
that would cause the psalmist anguish. God, where are you? You were supposed to make this good. You've let us down. And what he does is calls on God to remember his covenant with David. This covenant is explained in verses 20 through to to 37. We're going to take a little look at at that. But very simply, look at verse 29. We ask ourselves the question, what is this covenant? What are the purposes? What are the, the points of agreement that God has made with David? Firstly, in verse 29, it says, I will establish David's offspring forever. 2 Samuel 7 specifically says that this covenant will be fulfilled after God has raised up an offspring of David and after David has died. David is not supposed to be the king who reigns forever. And his throne is the days of the heavens, it says. It says there's a king ruling a kingdom forever and this king comes from the line of David. Or... A series of kings, because that's how it did begin. Verses 30 to to 32 says that if they sin, I will discipline and punish them, but not remove the covenant from them. That is huge, absolutely huge. Verse 33 says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. What this is saying is, is yes, the kings will sin and yes, they will be disobedient to me, but this covenant is essentially unbreakable. I will make sure that the offspring of David will rule forever. And why is this? Because of a very special bond between this offspring of David and God the Father. Verse 26, look at what it says. He says, he shall cry to me, you are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn. 2 Samuel 7.14, it said this way, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Sonship. The Davidic king will be a son of God. Now this is not a unique concept at all in scripture. Biblical understanding, which is very uh, unpolitically correct in 2017, I understand. But firstborn sons occupy a special place in the family where they have a father-son relationship and they receive the blessing of the inheritance. They have the preeminent place in the family. How very unegalitarian. Adam, in Luke 3.38, is said to be the son of God. Israel, in Exodus 4, when Moses is talking to, to Pharaoh, Exodus 4, Israel, the whole nation of Israel, is said to be God's son. But what makes this sonship particularly special in Psalm 89 is the nature of the relationship between God and the Davidic king. Adam, thinking caps on, thinking caps on, just for two minutes. Adam, prior to the fall, prior to the first sin in Genesis 3, was the son of God by obedience. That's important. 
His sonship, his role, his inheritance of the creation was tied to him obeying God's law. Very important. Two forms of sonship. The Davidic covenant, and I'm calling that sonship by obedience. The Davidic covenant, however, is sonship by adoption. It is as if David says to the Davidic king, you are mine. Your offspring are mine. This is huge. Absolutely huge. If we compare these two versions of sonship, the one with Adam and the one with David, to building a house, and I'm not making this up because Second Samuel 7 does use that illustration. If we're talking about building a house, sonship by obedience, Adam says, you're my son, I am your father, build me a house. You must build me a house. We get that? You must be obedient and build me a house. But on the other hand, sonship by adoption, like with David, says, I am your father, you are my son, I will build you a house. Huge, huge difference. Huge difference. Because if sonship, this father-son relationship is by obedience, it can be lost according to sin and disobedience. That's what happened with Adam. But if it is by adoption, it cannot be lost. It cannot be lost. By what basis then will this Davidic covenant be kept? On the basis of God's faithfulness and God's holiness. And that's what's happening in the first part of the psalm. The psalmist is saying God is faithful. He does not change. Verse 2, it says, For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you establish your faithfulness. And he makes this argument over and over and over and over again. The heavens don't change. Therefore, God doesn't change. He is faithful because he is not like us. People break promises. You understand that. We all understand that. All of us have broken promises. But God is said to be holy. Verse 35, it says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. Holiness means Separate. God is holy. He is separate from us. He is unlike us. People lie, but God is not like us. He does not lie. Therefore, he cannot lie. He doesn't break promises. So if God has sworn on the fact that he is faithful and unchanging, and he's sworn on the fact that he is holy, that he is completely unlike us, means he'll keep his word. This, therefore, brings hope. It's taken just two kings after David for this kingdom to seemingly fall apart. But God has promised to supply the kingship with the strength to rule forever. What has happened? David himself was imperfect. We know about that, David and Bathsheba and all those kind of things. You kill the husband of the woman you have an affair with, that's not good. 
but he was a man after God's own heart. He was an imperfect man, but he was a man that did love God. David was an imperfect king. His descendants, however, were even more imperfect. And all of this then begs, begs for a perfect Redeemer King. And we now know his name is Jesus. We now know this. Matthew's gospel goes to great pains to show that Jesus is the son of David. It was one of those things that we read when we read the gospels. We look at it and we go, okay, Jesus, the son of David. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The children sing, Hosanna to the son of David. And we look at that and we go, okay. But if we appreciate the Davidic covenant, it all starts making sense why they cared so much that Jesus was the son of David. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the town of David, under the reign of King Herod, who is not from the Davidic line. He's not. And he's in the pocket of Rome. He is no friend to the law of God. So when Jesus was born, the desire for this Davidic king to come and save his people was so, so strong. Jesus ultimately is the Davidic king, the offspring of David, rules forever. Let us sweep through the psalm real briefly and see that. Jesus is everywhere referred to as the Son of God, about 70 times in the New Testament alone. God, at Jesus' baptism, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God is the Father of Jesus. How? Eternally. John's Gospel in John 1.14 says that Jesus has been eternally begotten of the Father. He has eternally been the Son of God. He's not created like every other thing. He has always been the Son. Jesus is David's Lord, even though he is the descendant of David, because Jesus is real ages eternal. So Jesus is the Son of God. Also, as we see in the Davidic covenant, God has promised to discipline and punish the sins of the Davidic kings. But Jesus was without sin. He did not need to be punished. He did not need to be disciplined. However, he volunteered to go to the cross and be punished in the place of sinners and give his life as a ransom for them. When it says in the psalm that God you are full of wrath against your anointed, it can be applied to Christ on the cross. And Jesus then went to the grave, punished as a sinner, even though he himself was righteous and not a sinner. And if Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, was dead, and he remained dead in that grave, he couldn't be the one that fulfills the Davidic covenant. He couldn't. It couldn't be him if he remained dead. Now what? Look at verse 33. 32 says, I will punish the transgressions and their iniquity with stripes. And then verse 33 it says, But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
Jesus, because of the Davidic covenant, could not remain dead. Even though he was punished, he had to be raised again. Otherwise, God would have been false to his faithfulness. I want to argue right now, the cross and the resurrection from the dead are a direct result of God's covenant with David. I will punish, but I will remain faithful. There will be a king who reigns forever. The kings sinned, but the greater king, Jesus Christ, came that their sins and our sins might be forgiven. Now, there are, as we bring this to a close, there are a number of debates as to whether this covenant is completely fulfilled or not. Let me just say this. I don't get into them. Jesus is a king. He will reign over the kingdom of God, which is here now in part, and he returns. And when he returns, that kingdom will be here in fullness, a reign of righteousness and justice and love in a new creation. Whatever side we are on, whether we believe there is a, 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 another king to come from the tribe of uh, Israel or not, everyone believes that it ends with Jesus on the throne. Everyone agrees with that. David was never supposed to be it. None of David's sons were supposed to be it apart from Jesus Christ. The offspring of David who will rule forever is Jesus. And this is why Paul says things like in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And that's exactly what we're going to do now at this Lord's table. We're going to remember Jesus Christ. Rulers fail. Kings fail. But Jesus Christ is the perfect king. He doesn't need forgiveness for sin. He supplies forgiveness for sin. And with the Lord's Supper, because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if we are united to him by faith, we have as much right to the kingdom of God as he does. It's one of those statements that makes you backpedal. It's so intense. We have as much right to the kingdom of God as Jesus does if we are united to him by faith. A kingdom of righteousness and justice, not built with our hands, but built by him. We look forward as Christians to a kingdom where we cannot be thrown out unless the holy, eternal, faithful God stops being holy. That's the only way we could be thrown out of God's favor if we are Christians. The bread and the wine in front of us are given with the promise that one day we will eat and drink with him in his kingdom. That is immense. I know this looks very ordinary to have bread and to have some, some wine, but the kingdom is being made visible right in front of us when we eat and drink. And we partake knowing that our sins are forgiven because Christ died and because of the faithfulness of God the Father, he rose again. This is an immense, immense blessing. And the Davidic covenant is one of the things that God used to make it happen. Let's pray.